Welcome back to the uh, final panel of the day. It's a little bit different. We decided it was actually Judge Scheinland's suggestion <laughs> to actually have a conversation rather than belabor you with more speeches. Uh, I'm Trevor Burris. I'm a research fellow at the Center for Constitutional Studies here at Cato and one of the organizers of the conference. And I'm pleased to present this panel to go inside the courtroom and discuss with two esteemed attorneys and a judge who have also been an attorney, uh, <coughs> what happens inside the courtroom, building off of many things that have already been discussed today. So I'm going to briefly introduce uh, my fellow discussants. Uh, their extensive bios are in your packets. Uh, to immediately here to my left is Ken White. He is a founding partner at Brown, White, and Osborne, and a criminal defense and civil litigation boutique firm in Los Angeles. He has been a federal prosecutor, and he blogs at Pope Hat. Uh, if anyone didn't know, it's like, oh my God, that's Pope Hat. <laughs> <laughs> to his left is uh, Judge Shira Scheinland. Uh, uh, she's retired now from the uh, Southern District of New York after serving 22 years, and she's currently a member of the litigation practice group at Shruk. Uh, her most recent claim to fame was writing the opinion that overturned the New York City's stop and frisk program as unconstitutional. Thank you. <laughs> And to her left is Harvey Silverglate, uh, the criminal defense attorney, student rights, media rights, civil liberties, trial attorney. He's the author of Three Felonies a Day, one of the great books on, recent books on criminal justice reform. Uh, and he, his forthcoming book is going to be The Conviction Machine, I think, uh, at some point in the future. Uh, my favorite part of his bio is that in 1969, he defended the Harvard, was it 150 Harvard students who would sit in in pr protesting the draft, uh, he defend successfully defended them. So please join me in welcoming our panel. <laughs> now, when we were discussing this in planning stage, one of the things that I said I wanted to do, found my questions here, uh, was to pull aside the veil of the courtroom. For a lot of people who have never had many interactions with the criminal justice system outside of traffic court, what goes on in a courtroom and every sort of thing around it is sort of a mystery. So for the first question, I just want to ask, uh, actually, if we can start with you, Ken, what do you think is the most, the, the, the most, the biggest misconception or, or what people know the least about in terms of what actually happens in a courtroom? I think the biggest misconception is that people don't understand the extent to which the die has already been cast by the time you walk into the courtroom. We have this image from the culture that what's going on there is shaped by uh, talented and improbably attractive trial lawyers who can pull out things at the last minute to you know, get that acquittal or conviction and change what happens. But really in our system, an enormous amount of the probable result has been determined before the person gets in the courtroom. It's been determined by where they're charged. It's been determined by who charges them and what type of charging decisions they make, what kind of resources they have uh, to defend themselves, and the nature of the prosecutorial agency going after them. Sure. Well, uh, first I should say that my experience is all in federal court. I think it's important to make that point because of the last speaker who really spoke about, I think, the kind of uh, matters that come before him as a DA in state court. Federal court is quite different. But to answer the question, having made that disclaimer, what was fascinating as a federal trial judge is how little time I was in the courtroom. I was mm -hmm. stunned by that. I, I thought I was a trial judge. But there are no federal criminal trials anymore. 
it's really down to, I think, one or two, between one and two percent in federal, three percent in state. So there aren't public trials. There's not even a lot of time in the courtroom. Everything happens somewhere else. Everything happens in the prosecutor's office, initially the police and the arrest, then in the prosecutor's office, and, and then the judge has little discretion. So I guess what shocked me the most is I thought I had power. I had very little power, very circumscribed. The sentences were often dictated by, by mandatory minimums or, or at least guidelines. Uh, I had little discretion uh, in some of the rulings that really had to be made. Some of those are dictated on high, and you have to follow, obviously, the Supreme Court, maybe your circuit court, unless you can be clever and think of a way around. But those are the things I would start with, and I'm sure we'll have a chance to cover many more. Pivoting on what both of you have said and taking it just a little bit further, uh, much the, the outcome in certainly in federal court and to a very large extent state court uh, is not only uh, dependent on things that have happened outside of public view, outside of media view, but things that in many instances are fundamentally corrupt and I use that word in a very broad sense. But I mean that, for example, if you saw the way witnesses are made, you would be aghast. I have been doing this kind of work since I graduated law school in 67. It is true, my first criminal case was we represented the students who took over University Hall at Harvard, and we got all acquittals from the jury. Um, those were the days. <laughs> so Harvard was in utter shock that a 12 good people of Middlesex County didn't think enough of Harvard to convict all these people. Uh, in any event, back to what I'm supposed to be talking about. Uh, you would be shocked at how witnesses are made, the kind of deals, uh, the kinds of stories that are communicated to witnesses, sometimes subtly and sometimes not subtly. Uh, and the system, to quote a public figure that we've all come to know and love, the system really is rigged in a very <laughs> fundamental way. And I'd like to talk about the ways in which it's rigged and the ways I think we can unrig it. But it will take some fairly radical surgery to unrig the system. More on this later. Absolutely. Well, it's sort of a somewhat of a theme of the of the day to some extent, um, and that's and that's something I think to get into the rigged. But we also start talking about the mindset of prosecutors and defenders, and that's something that you had written, Ken, about when you were a prosecutor. Uh, your actual quote is: "I saw rights as a challenge, as something to be overcome to win a conviction." Uh, is this a common attitude of prosecutors? Do you think? Well, I don't think most of them would express it that way uh, or would admit it. Um, but And I don't think even if they sat and thought about it, uh, they would really express it that way. But it's, it's a cultural thing. And I don't think it's that prosecutors' offices attract bad people, present company excluded. I don't think that um, it's prosecutor offices make people bad. But there's any institution like that is going to have a culture. And the culture is one of victory. Uh, it's one of face. It's one of concerns about safety. You don't want to be the one who gave the easy plea and the guy went out and killed somebody. 
Uh, it's all of these things, and these things conspire to make you want to win, make you want to get a good result. Also, the camaraderie, I mean, it can't be understated. The, the five years I spent in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I had some of the best work friendships I've ever had. They were some of the best years of my career. But you get into this idea where you're with your friends, you're this band of brothers and sisters, uh, you're doing right, you're serving justice, and anyone who's attacking that is attacking you, attacking your friends. So all of a sudden, when someone gets a motion accusing them of prosecutorial misconduct, it's not really about um, an intellectual analysis of the merits of the motion. It's an attack on you and your friends and your team. And I think that's very human. I don't think it's uniquely prosecutorial. Is that similar to your experiences, either Judge? Well, I, I too, was a prosecutor, also five years, also U.S. Attorney's Office. But uh, the time frame was a while back. And what I noticed was a sea change in, in some of the functions of the prosecutor. So when I was a prosecutor, we actually left sentencing issues to the judge. <laughs> we respected the judge. We got our convictions, but then we didn't make a statement at sentence. We did not ask for a particular sentence. We made no statement. By the time I became a judge, I was stunned that the prosecutors would stand up and routinely request the maximum penalty they could get. And I couldn't understand it. And I would say to them sometimes, I, I would always start with, did you go to Harvard? How did you know? They were so out of touch. They were so out of touch with the people being sentenced. They had no idea where those people had come from, what they'd been through, why they were there. They were disconnected. They, they didn't relate to those people at all. They were just a statistic. They were another conviction, another high sentence. I, I really felt that these assistant U.S. attorneys, all of whom went to the best schools, at least in the Southern District of New York, top schools did, and top clerkships, didn't relate to these people and the consequences. They gave no thought to these lengthy prison terms that they were asking for. Indeed, in charging, they were insisting on through mandatory minimums. But I thought they had very little... I don't know whether it's empathy or sympathy, but they had very little of either for the people that they were requesting uh, serve the most time. So that's one, one thought I had about prosecutors. And, and you've never been a prosecutor, but you've faced off been, against many of them. I have <laughs> never been a prosecutor, right? I am pure. <laughs> <laughs> we are impure. <laughs> we are impure. But um, I, I'd like to follow up a point that you just made. Um, the... It's true that a lot of the prosecutors, especially in federal court, are kind of Ivy League law school types, and they don't really know that much about the real world. And one of the areas of the real world they know very little about is the culture of the investigators who are theoretically working for them, FBI agents, DEA agents, alcohol, tobacco, firearms agents. They do not understand the culture of these agents and they do not understand how these agents make cases. By the time a case is indicted and it gets into the hands of the prosecutor, the trial prosecutor, just about everything has been predetermined. Mainly what has been predetermined is what the witnesses are going to say. I will tell you that what the witnesses are gonna to testify to under oath doesn't always bear too much relationship to factual reality, if I can call it that. <laughs> and the way these stories are made up is, let me give you just one example 
uh, a, a very common technique. The FBI has a system where they go to interview witnesses. And it's always two agents, always two. One of them does the questioning, and one of them takes notes. Even in the age of the ubiquitous recording machine, they do not record the interviews. Instead, the agent takes notes, goes back and types up the notes, and produces what's called a Form 302 report, which supposedly is a synopsis of what the witness who was interviewed has said. It's really more aspirational than... It's quite... <laughs> yes, that's, you put it very nicely, politely. Um, in, in instances in which I have talked to these witnesses, very rarely has what the witness told me, he told the agent, coincided with what's in the 302 report. But there is a statute uh, on the books that makes it a felony to lie to an agent. So what the agent does is he then has another meeting with the witness, shows the witness what the witness told the agent. And the witness could say, oh, no, no, that's not what I told you. Whereupon the agent says, well, either you told me something else, which means you lied, or you're denying that this is what, this is the official record of our conversation. And we have a, a statute that makes it a felony to lie to an agent. And we have a statute that makes it a felony to change your story. And by the time the agent is through with the witness, that witness is well-practiced, well-rehearsed to testify against the target. And if the witness doesn't cooperate, the witness becomes the target. The they become Martha Stewart, right? Yeah. yeah. The perfect example. Ooh. The bottom line is that unless we change that system, there's a fundamental flaw in federal criminal justice that doesn't really guarantee very much justice. And it's just one example of the techniques. I want to yeah, pick up for a minute on, on that last comment because he started out talking about agents, and I think he ended up talking about what's well known as cooperators or snitches. So they're, they're two very different categories. The agents, I think the prosecutors start out completely trusting, and it's very hard for them to recognize that sometimes police lie. Sometimes they are known to have dropped a gun next to a body. Sometimes they've dropped a little bag of drugs next to a body. And, and, and we talked earlier about body cameras. Now, sometimes they have been impeached with a camera that they didn't know was on them. And they swore, that there were four cops, and, and they swore that a certain event went down a certain way. Then a video was found, and they all had lied. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying all cops lie, but I'm saying the trust that the prosecutor initially has in cops is somewhat naive. Now, that's the cops. Now, let's talk about the cooperators. That's really heartbreaking. Do they not understand the incentive to lie when you are facing life in prison, and if you make a deal, you'll get what's called a 5K1 letter, and you may do no time, or you may do very minor time, three years, 18 months compared to life? The incentive to say whatever needs to be said is enormous. And yet the, the young prosecutors, at least to my mind, seem to buy into it and believe every word of it with their heart and soul, as if they have no skepticism that this testimony 
has been tailored to please them and the case they wish to make. So for the juries that I've had, this is the first time they've seen a cooperating witness. So they, they are willing to buy it. But for me, it's the hundredth time. Yeah. And I've heard it and heard it and heard it. I've heard them, the way, they the way they testify, by the way, is tailored. They say the same things over and over again. If I tell a lie, my whole deal will be torn up and I'll go to jail for life. So they tell the jury sort that. Sort of magnificently oh. <coughs> recite the elements right. of the crime. Right, Ex they just... exactly. <laughs> I mean, they've been trained to say certain things. So I listened and had a great deal of skepticism, but a jury that only does this once is usually very impressed with the testimony. Yeah, I, I, I did not uh, learn to be skeptical of law enforcement as a defense attorney. I learned to be skeptical of law enforcement as a prosecutor. And uh, it started with things like, you know, uh, federal courts are much more likely to examine a search warrant and see that it complies with something resembling a standard of law. Uh, which is appreciated. And so I would very carefully sit with the agents before a major search and say, okay, these are the things that you are allowed to take. If it's not on here and it's not obviously criminal, you cannot take it. Okay, and then say it back to me. <laughs> and two days later, they're back with this collection of seemingly random things, items that have just been picked up around the search warrant location and are quite upset with me when I point out that there's a problem. Yeah, it's a cultural issue and it's an issue about how prosecutors view agents and law enforcement. Well, the, well, Supreme, the but, Supreme Court, though, is somewhat complicit in all of this. Sure. They've created so many exceptions to what we might think of as Fourth Amendment rulings that we have to talk about that. So there's the plain view exception. Well, everything miraculously is in plain view. Of course, I wasn't looking for a gun in the drawer, but it happened to be on top of the table, so I saw it in plain view. I seized it, even though that's they not... They will never lie about right. that. No, yeah. no, of course not. And, and the other one that's always bothered me is inevitable discovery. Oh, yeah. In other words, the court says... The law was violated. Absolutely, you had no right to do that. But inevitably, it would have been discovered anyway. So I'll allow it in. So we find that there's so many ways around what we think of as strong constitutional protections that, again, one gets a little, a little skeptical. Well, these constitutional protections, it's very hard to get the public to accept them because sure. it implies that it's somebody who's guilty might get off. Mm -hmm. That's a hard sell. But the sell that I'd like to make, though, is on the question of truth versus falsehood from government witnesses. And I would abolish the plea bargaining system entirely. I would abolish giving any quarter to a witness, uh, any immunity to a witness. I, no, I would give immunity, but only immunity issued by a judge. I don't think prosecutors and agents should be allowed to bargain well, with witnesses. Isn't that, I mean, it has always struck me as odd that if you were a defense attorney and you went up to pay someone for their testimony, that is a ethics violation right. to say the least, but what the oh, prosecutors, it's an it's, yeah, right. what the prosecutors are able to pay them by saying 50 years of your life, I'll give it back to you in exchange for this testimony, and then they all look on it. And if I remember correctly, in the late 90s, the 10th Circuit actually ruled that, that for a, a, split, a hot minute, they ruled that it was, a, it, it was against the, those rules for prosecutors to procure the testimony of a witness, and, I, I with, and then the en banc overturned it. Right. But for about two months, yeah. every prosecutor in America was freaking out right. in a, a wonderful way. Right. And it shows another instance of how much difference prosecutorial discretion can make when that discretion is brought favorably to bear on witnesses who are cooperating. So I, I, as a lawyer, take witnesses into the government for proffers, usually trying to get them out of trouble all the time. And 
that can be very dangerous because the government can turn around and prosecute my client under 1001 for making a false statement to the government if they feel like it, if they decide they don't believe this person's story. So the, the, the so-called queen for a day, the use immunity they get for that meeting does not protect them from lies. But the discretion the prosecutors have to decide whether or not that was a lie, to decide whether or not to prosecute it is inextricably intertwined with their feeling about whether this helps them or not, whether or not it gets them where they want to be going. So the, the decision whether or not to go after a witness who's caught in a lie is bound up to how useful that witness is to the government. I, I want to talk about plea bargaining for a minute. We've been talking so far about plea bargaining with cooperating witnesses to essentially get their testimony. But then there's the rest of plea bargaining. Forget about cooperating witnesses, disposing of the case by plea bargain. This is, this is an insidious practice, too, because the offer relieves the defendant of a draconian sentence that that defendant will get if they risk going to trial and lose. So we know that there are innocent people who plead all the time. There are statistics on this. The innocence projects that have freed people have shown that approximately 10 to 15% of those who've been found innocent pled to a crime they never committed. And, and that, is that is frightening. And why do they do it? You really have to ask yourself, if you were facing life in prison or a mandatory 25, but the plea offer was five, as painful as the thought is of being behind bars for five years, I think I'd take the five, right. knowing the conviction rate of trial. I wouldn't risk the 25. And the Supreme Court has said that's not a violation of due process. I don't always admire Supreme Court decisions <laughs> for a host of reasons. <laughs> it's just one more. Let me give a specific example of something like that that kind of gives you an indication of how much power prosecutors actually have and how early. I was a rookie in 1996, and I was handed a file of a guy who'd uh, robbed five banks, caught in the last one with a gun. He had the misfortune of being caught with an actual gun, so he couldn't say that was fake one before. He had the misfortune of being charged by the feds. By the time I got the file, he'd been charged with five counts of bank robbery and five counts of something called 924C, carrying a firearm in the course of a federal crime. Five-year mandatory minimum for the first one, 25-year mandatory minimum for each subsequent one. They stack. And here I was told, decide how to plea bargain this. If I wanted to plea bargain it so that he had to not plead to any of the gun counts, I would have had a hell of a fight with my supervisors. If I wanted to bargain it so he had to take them all, I probably would have heard from my supervisors. But as to the rest, it was largely up to me, not to the judge, not to right, someone no. with 40 years more experience than me. It was up to me whether this human being was going to go to prison for about a decade or about um, three quarters of a century. I was 26. You, you weren't, you so were I just wanna, out of law school. You, 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 exactly. you, you, so I do want to say as a judge that one of the most painful parts of judging was having to impose a sentence that I did not believe in. And I had many friends who said, I could never be a judge. I wouldn't want to be a judge. I wouldn't be part of a system where I had to do something that I thought was wrong. So I gave that a lot of thought in, the, in my early years, not, the, not, not at the end of 22, but at the early years. I thought, well, how, how can I do this morally? And it, it seems wrong. I should just resign and, and get out of here. But then it occurred to me, what for? The next judge will simply have to give the identical sentence that I didn't want to give, because these were, as you said, stacked, which means consecutive years. So 25 plus 5 plus the underlying. So 
It would have to be imposed anyway. And I said to myself, well, I'll do it. I'll feel dirty, but I'll do it. Because at least in sentences where I have some discretion, I might exercise it differently or better than the next fellow. So it was a reason to stay, but so, it was painful. Let's talk about, I want, so as I said, pulling the curtain aside on the courtroom, how much do mandatory minimums change the game just across the board? Well, I, first I mean, of all, of course, is pleas. We just said that. But from we the just, very beginning. From the very beginning, the very, but the yeah. plea is if you, if you don't take the plea and you're convicted, you will have, in your example, the five and the 25 consecutive, and that's 30 years of your life. So that's the first thing about mandatory minimum. But the other point, of course, is the lack of discretion of judges. Why, why are we judges? We, we were supposed to be judges because we were experienced and had the, had the judgment, judging, judgment, to do something, and we lost it. So it all, all the power went to the executive branch. So we, we're supposed to have these three co-equal branches. You can forget that. Congress put the mandatory in. The executive decided to charge it. There it went away. Now, in 2013, uh, then Attorney General Holder did something that was unusual. He said, for the first time in a memo, we, the prosecutors throughout this country do not have to charge the highest possible count. Up until then, the federal prosecutors were on notice. You must at least charge the highest possible count. You don't have to insist on that for the plea, but you have to charge it. But the Holder memo changed that. I suggest to you that the attorney general, new attorney general, will reverse the Holder memo. <laughs> well, the, the mandatory minimum sentence is really the prosecutor's protection against the judge who doesn't want to That's buy exactly into right a plea bargain that has something really wrong with it. That's true. And, and, and thus point. they're protected against it. Now, before this, before the mandatory minimums, there was a lot of criticism about judges being too lax on criminals. Um, was that a problem too? Is there something in between complete well, discretion? Well, that's how, that's how we got the sentencing guidelines. It wasn't that they were too lax, but they were all over the map. Mm -hmm. And so the, the luck of the draw of the judge you drew was going to make an enormous difference on what your client got. And it was perceived to be unfair. So the folks who, who supported the uh, creation of the sentencing guidelines actually meant well. They had hoped to eliminate this terrible disparity of a hanging judge or, or an easy judge so that all, your whole life turned on, on the fortuity of which judge. So they meant well. But that's not what happened because the commission and, and the legislature kept ratcheting up the guidelines. And we ended up, for example, with the crack powder disparity, which was so destructive in terms of prison population. Let's, uh, let's talk, we've been beating up on prosecutors a little bit. Um, is there something, what, what sort of biases do defense attorneys have that might actually have a negative effect on the criminal justice system? Or are they merely heroes without capes? I was Harvey Luke to be all skeptical. I'm like, <laughs> it's a loaded question. Yeah. You call it biases. I call it insights. <laughs> as, as a result of years of ex decades of experience seeing something happen uh, that shouldn't happen, um, you know, and it's uh, you can actually the the, the real uh, job is becoming being a defense lawyer for forty or fifty years, not getting cynical. Because cynicism is really the killer in, in this system. It's so easy to turn cynical. Um, and, uh, you know, if I listen to one more witness uh, testify uh, uh, to a story that I know was fed to him, I say, not so much by the prosecutors. Prosecutors feel uncomfortable feeding this kind of a story to a witness. Agents do not feel uncomfortable. So that part of the case is done before the prosecutor actually 
gets his hands on it. And you know, how do you, how do you deal with this? I would say I would abolish uh, giving any witness any favor in exchange for testimony. Immunize them and put them on the stand, but do not make any deals or any favors. Otherwise, the system is never gonna get change from what I think is fundamentally a corruption. I, I think defense attorneys can de definitely have biases, and having had the perspective of being a prosecutor first, I see it sometimes when I talk to colleagues who kind of view prosecutorial decision-making as sort of like a, a bond supervillain process, really. Uh, and it's, it's not like that, necessarily. Um, the other way I think that we can get biased is that we can get too captured by the system and too hardened to what it looks like to people outside and how what the experience is like, how dehumanizing it is, how what we have accepted as routine uh, is in fact freakish and uh, not something we should accept. I see this because I have clients who can pay and are people who went to college and grew up in good neighborhoods and now for the first time in their lives are caught up in the system. And almost every one of these clients uh, who are very materially fortunate and now are in trouble say to me, why, you know, they have it in for me because the only rational response I can have to the things happening to me, to the way I'm being treated, is that I'm being singled out by some sort of conspiracy. Because it's inconceivable otherwise that people would be treated this way. Uh, the dice would be loaded like this. Now, when I did the indigent defense panel and I represented people who did not go to college, uh, who had been in the system again and again and again, they never thought they were the victim of a conspiracy. They knew that's the way the system works. That's the way the system treats people. And that, well, that brings up the question of for the non-rich, and this might be more of a, of a state court question, but for the, those who can't afford attorneys um, and the, those who, the unmet legal need in the country creates even a worse problem, often at a county level, for people who are just basically railroaded into prison. Do you guys have any... Thoughts on that? Like unmet legal need of indigent people at well, different levels? I haven't been a defense attorney, but I've done a lot of reading in the area. Everybody gets an attorney, but the question is the quality of, the, of that attorney and the time that that attorney has to put into the case. Some of the volumes of, of public defenders are ridiculous. They have hundreds of cases. I listened to the last speaker, who the prosecutor, who said what he was able to do with one person. There are defense attorneys with 300, 400 cases at once. Frankly, they're skeptical of their client's story because they've heard that same story so many times. The client says, man, I didn't do it. I wasn't even there. And the lawyer's like, yeah, 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 you, you, know, you better plead. So I think that when you have high volume like that and you, don't have, you meet your client in the courtroom and you have five minutes in the, in the room behind, in the cell behind the courtroom to get ready for the first appearance, basically you're, you're going to say to the person, take a plea. Let's get out of here because that's the way the system works state system primarily, it turns it over fast. And so if you want to get out of here, just plead. <coughs> and when, when you just plead, you've got a criminal record. And we, we talked, we touched about on that a little bit earlier, but I wanted to talk about some of the collateral consequences. One of them is the deportation that we're about to face, the mass deportations. This, the president-elect has said, well, we're going to get rid of these people who are felons. It isn't hard to be a felon when you got arrested, you know, for, th for three marijuana cigarettes or a small amount of cocaine or something. You've got the felony conviction, but that doesn't make you, a, you know, a really violent, bad criminal who has to go on the next arrest. So it's those first convictions that have so many consequences. It ratchets up your second arrest. 
It makes you liable for deportation. And you probably had pretty poor representation on that first one, or it wouldn't have been a felony at all. It should have been able to have been dismissed or a misdemeanor. So. But what you've touched upon is another problem, and that's over-criminalization. So many things are illegal in this society that everybody's a criminal, only some of us have gotten caught and some of us have not. But there are so many things that are illegal that um, everybody's vulnerable. And the secondary, the second point, in the federal system, the cases are so complicated that an appointed lawyer in the federal system is very tempted to try to arrive at a plea bargain simply because it's a real imposition on the lawyer to have the lawyer prepare and try one of these mega cases. You know, the, the system is a system of limited jurisdiction. In order, three quarters of the time spent in the federal trial is trying to, is trying to prove jurisdiction. You know, that there was actually a violation of interstate commerce. And, and uh, these cases are very expensive to defend. And if you're a lawyer who's appointed, you, the temptation to plead the client is overwhelming. That's not a very uh, 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 nice thing to say about defense lawyers, and it, it doesn't make them look great. But I think the reality is that that really weighs on the scale. I want to go back to that, that first conviction that I talked about because I forgot to make this comment. That, that first conviction is, all, all, is frequently concentrated in minority areas because of over-policing in certain jurisdictions. So who's most likely to have that first felony conviction, often for a minor crime, is not, again, the children of the folks in this room. Because in, in my state or my city, the police aren't going to Long Island. The, the teenagers in Long Island also have marijuana or cocaine. But the police are going to the neighborhoods where they know they can easily sweep up people and make those arrests and get that first conviction. So there, there is a disparity right off the bat. I wanted to follow up on something that Harvey said about over-criminalization. And I, I agree that just too many things having criminal consequences is a problem. And another related problem is the flexibility of the criminal laws that we have in some instances. Now, Harvey alluded to this earlier when he talked about the laws against lying to the government. That's uh, Title 18, United States Code 1001. And it is the bane of many person who thinks they can go in and lie to the government. Uh, you have people like Martha Stewart. You have the general who just recently pled guilty, uh, not to some underlying offense, but to lying when trying not to get caught with the underlying offense. You have this system where uh, the government can come to you, demand that you answer questions, and if you lie, then they have a case. And this is the interesting thing about it. They don't have to prove that the lie really mattered. Okay? So I had a client... He gets rousted in his house at 7 in the morning in his pajamas by guys in raid jackets and guns, dragged out into the back of a government car uh, in his driveway, sat between two beefy agents, and he's asked, were you at this meeting of this political body on this date? And the guy makes a not very good decision. He answers at 7 in the morning. He's terrified. He's completely out of sorts. He says no. Now, those agents already had three witnesses putting him at the meeting and a recording of him at the meeting. Him saying no did not alter the course of justice in any perceptible way whatsoever. But they charged him with 1,001, beef up their relatively weaker substantive case. And when the government does that, they have to technically prove materiality. They have to prove 
But all that means when the government does it is they have to prove that this is the type of statement that could conceivably be the type of thing that could make a difference. Now, that's pretty much everything, right? Now, contrast that for a minute. Let's say that one of those agents had lied in the search warrant application for my client's house. And I found out about it, and I filed a motion to suppress the search. Then, all of a sudden, I have to prove a different type of materiality. I don't have to prove this is the type of information that might make a difference. I have to prove that it did make a difference, that this specific lie, if you took it out, would have resulted in there being no probable cause for the search. There's a different standard for the people policing us and their truth or untruth than there is for us. On the over-criminalization point, uh, this seems tied into, so you said, Harvey, that you would abolish plea bargaining? Yes. Now, the obvious retort is the floodgates of the courthouses will open up. There cannot, we have very few trials. Trials take a lot of resources. So how are we going to deal with this, this problem if we abolish well, plea bargaining? I think we would have far fewer prosecutions because the system simply couldn't do it. Um, it's, a, it it's a kind of, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really serious about this. It, People say, oh, you know, you just, uh, it would really make a difference in the system if we abolish plea bargaining. Suddenly, there would be trials again. You know, Judge Young in the District of Massachusetts, when you always hear him lament about the fact he's been on the bench forever and he doesn't have any federal trials, criminal trials. Um, and the reason for that is that it's too risky to go to, you can't go to trial. If you're a sane human being, you'll even plead to something you didn't do, that's the point you made, rather than take your chances at a, at a trial. And the, you know, this problem of the agents not having to record their interviews is a terrible problem. You know, you think it's all one little rule, FBI rule, but it really determines the outcome of a majority of federal criminal trials, in my experience, that if there was a recording of what the witnesses said, there would be a, a more of a ball game, you know, that you have a chance of winning once in a while because truth would suddenly matter. I wanted to give a war story, too, about a 1,001 prosecution uh, that I think was very interesting because sometimes it's used as a lever. The hope is that if we threaten you with that prosecution, you will turn and be able to give us something we really want. So there was a young man named Osama Awadallah. That was a bad first name to have, <coughs> Osama, right, af right after 9-11. And Osama Awadallah happened to know all of the hijackers. They'd been roommates in San Diego. He knew these people. So they drag him across the country. They arrest him as a material witness. They drag him across the whole country from jail to jail to jail. They could have flown him in five hours, but they didn't. They took him through every jail. They put him in a jail in New York City. They put him in the grand jury. And the question he was asked was, would he state the full name of each of the hijackers? He said, I, I forgot the first name, but it was so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so, but he forgot the first name. Those names had already been in the New York Times. Everybody knew the full name of all the hijackers, but they indicted him for perjury because they said he lied. He had to have known the first name of these people. Now, they were simply frustrated that they couldn't charge this guy with material support or with terrorism. And I think their hope was if they slapped an indictment on him, he would suddenly have somebody to give up in that world. He didn't. He went to trial. It was a very quick story, so I'll keep it short. The first trial was 11 to 1 for conviction. There was one holdout, so it was a mistrial. 
A year and a half later, because it takes that long to get things done, there was a second trial, but the country had moved on, and he was acquitted, which is 12-0. So it was really a fascinating case to see the public opinion, I think, turn, turn around completely and become rather against what the government was doing with terrorism prosecutions. And it was the government that decided that he must know the first oh, names. Oh, he must have, sure. That he, right, that right. in their discretion. Well, too. and what really bothered me was the materiality point. Sure. I mean, really bothered me. How could that have been material when it was already in the New York Times? But well, the, the, the corrective power of the jury system is thwarted in these kind. You know, it's like you you started out with my case involving the takeover of University Hall at Harvard. Harvard couldn't figure out why twelve Middlesex County jurors in a case where there were hundreds of witnesses that these students took over the building, would acquit them. Well, it sent a message uh, about the view of the people of Middlesex County okay. about the war and about Harvard. They never received the message, but the jurors delivered it. With, uh, not to beat up on prosecutors more, but um, the incentive structures of prosecutors, maybe federal prosecutors specifically, always seem to me very striking because you'll hear stories about um, there's a famous one, uh, a grandpa who mispackaged lobster tails in boxes rather than bags, and they threw the book at it. It's a Lacey Act violation. Look up, read the Wikipedia. But they, they, he, he, mis, he mispackaged lobster tails. He was a fisherman. They put him in jail for eight years. And I'm sitting there as someone who's never been a prosecutor or a defense attorney, wondering if they're either sadists <laughs> or, or trying to get a promotion. How does that even happen? Well, let me tell you what might have happened there. Okay. Okay. As a, a federal prosecutor, you in effect have clients, you have constituents. Those are the various agencies that you service in your particular federal district. And all of these agencies want a little something, right? Some of them automatically get a lot of attention. Your DEA, your ICE, your FBI. But then there are the smaller agencies, you know, Agriculture OIG, which fish might... And, fish and Wildlife. Fish and Wildlife. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't do a case for them now and then, it's a big issue, and the U.S. attorney hears about it. And so now and then, one of these cases that you normally would never do um, gets done just to keep that particular agency happy because you haven't done it in a while. Um, I'm always amused when I see people... Uh, running around with guns uh, representing NCIS on TV because my experience with NCIS was mostly um, them complaining to the U.S. attorney that I wouldn't charge someone for flying the flag wrong. <laughs> and it's amazing how far up the ladder some of these cases can go. One of the Supreme Court decisions that I do like was just a year or two ago. It also involved fish. And it was an ah. obstruction of justice case. It was really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And it obviously had gone through the trial court, to the appellate court, all the way to the Supreme Court. The question was, this fellow caught fish that were too small, and he threw them back in. So did he destroy the evidence when he threw the <laughs> obstruction of justice? Pursuant to Sarbanes-Oxley. Yes, yes, exactly. He threw them back in, and finally the Supreme Court said, no, 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 that's not what we meant by obstruction of justice. All of these cases, the Lacey Act case, the case about the guy who threw the undersized fish yeah, back in the yeah. ocean and was obstructing justice yeah. by destroying evidence. Yeah. Uh, that would be solved with a, the enactment of the mens rea legislation right. that we have been fighting for for several years now. There's actually somewhat of a, of, of a bipartisan, uh, Cato is, I believe, part oh, of, of course, it, yeah. a, a, a bipartisan coalition that's seeking to get the enactment of a very simple federal statute 
that in order to get convicted of a felony, you have to have known what the law required and knowingly violated it. You would think that's a rule of civilization we would long ago have accepted, but uh, for, for the most part, state courts are pretty good about this. Federal courts are terrible about this. Well, of this. course, they, you know, the, the last time this came up, the big hubbub that the, the left uh, threw about this was that it would apply to corporations. So well, it might have, turning the anti-corporate yeah. thing going into sync a basic principle it might have saved. Law. It might have saved Arthur Anderson, uh, a huge true. company that went down. Well, there for, are civil liability. I, to put I on understand, them. Yeah. but it ruined the company. Yeah. So I mean, it just it's a, it's going to be a weird fight over white collar crime and corporate liability to try and get general mens rea requirements What's in there. I always thought that it we was, could get. It was a criminal. Excuse me. It was Arthur Anderson was a criminal case. It was a criminal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You said civil. Well, liability. but they, if if they didn't have the criminal. They could the the, the I, people okay. who defrauded by Arthur Anderson could have gone after them in a civil in a civil suit. Um, so I, here, 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 I, I always thought that that the way to get mens rea legislation enacted is somehow to get it to apply to political corruption cases. Well, and it does in some cases. Yep. In, in in California, yeah. I, I represent yeah. people accused of um, having a conflict of interest in uh, some transaction they do while they are a public official. And it's a strict liability crime. It doesn't matter if the public entity's in-house counsel told you this is acceptable, you can do it, and the public entity voted on it, you're on the hook. It doesn't matter whether you thought it was legal or not. Well, so not, it's, it's a real problem. And another example, I think, was the overturning of the conviction of the Maryland governor and his wife, right? Mm -hmm. These were ordinary uh, government Vir functions. Vir Virginia. Virginia, Virginia, Virginia yeah. thank you. Ordinary government functions. Not intended. Well, that's that's honest right. services fraud statute, which I, which is just a, <laughs> an amorphous blob of right, just BS. The exactly. Supreme Court insists is not unconstitutionally vague. Yes, provided fourth that time it's, it's right yeah. How many opinions now have they tried many. to figure out many. what it That's means. a good question for the judge. How do you do that when you have a, a, a case in front of you? That is something like the honest services fraud. Maybe you had cases, and you're reading over these Supreme Court cases that are trying to tell you how to interpret this, and it's nearly impossible to figure it out. I, th I think you, you gave my answer. It's, nearly, right, exactly, it's exactly. nearly impossible to figure out, and because the circuit has said uh, on a close call, you should let it go to trial, basically see if there's a conviction. If it is, we can always review it. So they sort of discourage very strongly for the district court to throw it out before the, before the facts are developed. Is this a problem? Is the Supreme Court failing to give guidance on some of these to an adequate degree? And oh, maybe yeah. because some of them have not been trial judges or actual you know, prosecutors, is, is that a problem? Yeah, yeah, they leave things confusing. They came out yesterday with the Salmon decision on insider trading, but it didn't do as much as it should have done. All it says is under those facts, that kind of giving of a gift to a relative is a violation. Okay, doesn't really tell us whether the facts in Newman, the other case, would have would, would still be uh, a violation or not. So that, that's part of the general doctrine that you decide a case on the narrowest grounds you can. I've never understood that doctrine, but it's apparently quite deeply embedded in federal mm. law, yeah. especially if it's a constitutional case. Should prosecutors have immunity? I think I know Harvey. <laughs> well, we've, we've been prosecutors. You start. <laughs> should, should they have immunity? Oh, wow. Um, uh, yeah, oh, wow. See, well, Kaczynski, of course, I mean, we have an epidemic of Brady violations. Sure. As Judge Kaczynski has written about, and there's a lot more uh, things coming out where there seems to be pretty corrupt, even on a, a, the entire department in, in the one issue in California. But, uh, and then they have immunity. So should they have immunity? 
I'm a complete defense true believer now, but I think that here we've got two things up against each other. One is the, the lack of policing and prosecutorial misconduct, the lack of consequences for it, and the other is the utterly broken civil justice system. So that I think that if you didn't have some sort of stop on, um, on suing prosecutors, that it would be pretty much unworkable very quickly. But I think that we have to significantly reconsider the scope of prosecutorial immunity and police immunity, for that matter, and recalibrate how we view it. And so, you know, right now, prosecutorial immunity for most conduct is absolute. I think we could rethink the absolute nature of it. I think we could also rethink how we approach um, qualified immunity, limited immunity. Normally, you have your many people, cops particularly, have qualified immunity if it's not obvious to a reasonable person in their position that this was outside the law. And unfortunately, what the courts think is obvious uh, sometimes doesn't bear a real resemblance to what the rest of us think is obvious. So I, it's, I don't, it's, it's, I, I don't think the system would work if you just threw out all immunity, but I think it needs to be changed. So I, I agree that we should retain prosecutorial immunity, but I think the consequences that prosecutors should suffer for Brady violation have to be enhanced. There isn't enough to deter them. And so I hope you all know they're not turning over from their files the exculpatory or impeachment evidence that they're required to turn over. They're, in fact, hiding it. They're suppressing it. And that's really unethical. So if, the, if they were policed in the sense of ethics, maybe they'd be disbarred for an unethical uh, behavior, not, not criminally prosecuted, but there could be other consequences, starting with being fired and then maybe as, as far as being disbarred. But one so. of the real problems is how hard it is to catch a prosecutor right. who is suppressing exculpatory evidence. I had one federal case a few years ago in which I, was, I had information that a federal prosecutor had a dynamite exculpatory evidence in his file and he wasn't producing it. I couldn't be too specific about it because my source didn't want me to disclose where I learned this information. So I filed an ex-party motion with the federal judge in Boston asking the judge to authorize a search of the prosecutor's <laughs> office looking at this for this evidence. And I did manage to get this far. The judge gave me a lobby conference without the prosecutor knowing about it, without the prosecutor being invited, and asked me why he should not let the prosecutor know that I filed this motion. I said, because the evidence will be gone one hour later. And he said, well, I, I feel uncomfortable doing this ex parte. And I said, well, if you're inclined to let the prosecutor know I filed this, I withdraw the motion. <laughs> and I, I withdrew the motion. Um, and, so and, oh, sorry. we never, we never were able to prove what we knew. Right. And with, with respect to qualified immunity, you raised qualified immunity. The Supreme Court gave us one of the worst qualified immunity decisions. I'm going to forget the name, but it had to do with a prosecutor's office, where the whole office Connick had a Thompson? Yes, Connick, Connick, Connick versus Thompson. Absolutely right. So the prosecutor's office had repeatedly, and as a pattern and a practice fail to turn over what they were required to turn over in discovery. It may not even be Brady, Brady and or just plain discovery. And they've done it again and again. And the 
the, the, the opinion still said, well, it couldn't be shown that they knew at the time they didn't, that they shouldn't have. And it was really a terrible decision. Well, Gosh. this is what Judge Kaczynski is now on sure. the warpath. I know he is, but he's not that he didn't never made it to the Supreme Court. But the conic the conic <laughs> the conic justices did. Well, I mean, realistically, though, we live in a world where the appellate judges generally don't even name prosecutors when they are making specific findings that the prosecutors committed serious egregious violations of defendants' rights. Let alone inflict. We can't, we can't even name them, or let report, alone put consequences. Right. Report it to the Bar Association at the very, right. very right. least. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm going to open up for questions here in a sec, but, I, but, <laughs> but while they're bringing the mics down, um, we already talked about the plea bargaining as a suggested reform, but some suggested reforms, uh, just uh, what would most help uh, of any of the, anything we've talked about or something else that we haven't discussed. If you just want a soundbite, I'll go back, and you've heard it all day, mandatory minimums, I'd like to see them go. I'd like to have judges exercise judgment, which is why we're there. So I, I would like to give some power back to the judge, whether it's uh, some control over the charging, some ability to be involved in the sentencing in a way that we aren't. Those are the things I would start with. I, you know, the answer is money. Uh, we've got, when it comes to putting people in cages, we've got champagne tastes and... Uh, Mr. Pibb budget, and I don't think we should. Uh, I don't think we should be trying to put people in jail if we can't, uh, if we're not willing to take the money out of our pocket to defend them adequately. And I would abolish making any deal with a witness where the witness got anything in exchange for the testimony. It's an obstruction of justice if a prosecutor does it. If it's an obstruction of justice if I do it. Okay. Uh, uh, here, the woman, the glasses on the. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks so much for such a lively discussion. I want to follow up about your comments on mens rea reform, and I, I hope that I don't ruin a kumbaya moment here, but I wanna, I'm wondering what you think about the idea that more stringent mens rea requirements would make it difficult to prosecute white-collar crimes because of the difficulties of finding the evidence to, to show that there was an intent. Uh, so I wonder what you think about that. Well, the thing about mens rea reform is it would be across the board. Uh, it would apply to, to all felonies. And in, in the, 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 the way it's structured is, in order to enact a strict liability crime, the legislature or Congress would have to specify that it's strict liability. Right now, the presumptions are all in the wrong direction. So the statute would require proof of intent to commit the crime and knowledge that it was a crime, which gets rid of all of the vague criminal statutes. And unless Congress specifies a particular crime, the strict liability. And I don't know what would happen if you have a strict liability crime where no normal human being would assume it's a crime and you're prosecuted. The court might impose on due process grounds and implied uh, because, you know, mens rea intent is something that's hundreds of years old that precedes the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a very fundamental right that has been eviscerated. So I have a problem with your question. It seems like you're sort of more concerned about defendants who commit white-collar crimes than defendants who commit, maybe we'll call them street crimes. But to me, all defendants are, are the same, and they're all entitled to a fair defense or a fair prosecution, 
And so I have no trouble saying, even if it means that some white, so-called white-collar defendants aren't convicted, so be it. So I have to agree with you that I think that it would, a mens rea requirement, the most noticeable things would probably be first the things we call white-collar crimes. But I have to agree with the judge that it's a process issue. It's right. if, if we don't treat everyone like they deserve due process, right. we're not going to treat anyone like they deserve due exactly. process. Okay. Paul Better Kaminer. said. Uh, uh, here on the aisle. Oh. Thank you. Uh, Paul Kaminar, a Washington attorney. Uh, two comments. One, Trevor, about the lobster tail case that you talked about. That was one of my cases where uh, the, he imported frozen lobster tails from Honduras yeah. in clear plastic bags instead of cardboard boxes required. But the question is, why did he get eight years over prosecution? They said, oh, the Lacey Act violation is a few months. However, we're going to charge you with smuggling. Mm. Smuggling. We bought it in clear plastic bags, went through customs, went through FDA inspection. Why would he smuggle it? They said, oh, because the definition of smuggling is bringing it to the country something that's illegal. We're not done yet. Uh, did you pay for these goods? Sure did. Here's our invoices. Here's our canceled checks. We're legitimate businessmen. What did we do wrong? Aha, money laundering. <laughs> Paying for the proceeds. That got him up to the eight years. It shows the abuse of prosecution. One final thing on mens rea that you're all talking about that's very important and, and dovetails off the question that was just made. White-collar crime and regulatory offenses all have, you can prosecute criminally, civilly, or administratively with all these regulatory stuff. So what you have is over-prosecution on this over-criminalization. There's a case that's going to be filed in the Supreme Court in a few weeks that Cato was an amicus on NACDL and 12 criminal law professors, U.S. versus Clay, uh, where the jury instruction on intent for a Medicaid fraud is, did they know that they violated the law or were deliberately indifferent mm -hmm. to the truth. And the courts have held that deliberate indifference is not knowing and willful that they knew the regulation. So that's a key issue that Seth Waxman we found this repetition, and it's one that everybody should have on, on the radar screen. The CEO, by the way, a Harvard MBA, is reporting to prison tomorrow huh. for his three-year prison sentence. The government wanted 20 years. See any follow-up on that? No, no. <laughs> No, there's a good uh, question there. Daniel, on the far left here in the green, uh, so the, the, on the back, <laughs> if I can get to you, sir. I'll... Thanks, Trevor. Uh, Daniel Pryor from Students for Liberty. So one of the things that was mentioned was the argument for mandatory minimums that there's going to be this large spread in, in sentencing. You get hard judges and, and soft judges and things like that. And I was wondering what sort of reforms could be proposed to counter that without having to go so far as mandatory minimums? Or if it's not a problem, then that's Well, I, th I, I think we eventually got there, but it took an awfully long time. When the sentencing guidelines first came in, which were they were originally planned to get rid of that disparity, they were mandatory. Then the Supreme Court in 2005 in Booker said they're not mandatory. They're just supposed to help guide the judges. At least in the Southern District of New York, most of the judges are not giving guideline sentences. They're, they're giving what they call variances, way below the guidelines. So once the judges have the discretion back, the guidelines aren't so awful because they are a touchstone. You can at least start with them. And, and Booker says you have to at least consider them. One of the factors you have to consider is the guidelines. But you don't have to do it. So I think we may, ha may have come to a midpoint on, on that. The other thing you could do, I think, is to broaden the so-called safety valve. Mm. So there's, for federal drug crime mandatory minimums, there's a, a safety, the, the two ways to get out from under one. Number one is to be a rat. 
Uh, excuse me, a cooperator. Number two, <laughs> number two is to meet these five hurdles in the safety valve. No crime of violence here, uh, certain low criminal history, three other factors. So it still limits the judge's discretion substantially to go outside the mandatory minimum. You could broaden that safety valve to apply to other crimes and maybe to a somewhat broader range of people and achieve some of the same benefit of getting rid of the safety valves. Well, that is actually all the time we have, unfortunately. Please join me in thanking a wonderful panel. Notwithstanding, uh, I'm going to try to hurry because I'm all that stands between you and the reception, which will be uh, out in the lobby after, after these remarks. You can't miss it. Uh, first, I'd like to thank the conference staff here at Cato uh, who did so much work and uh, put up with me and my policy colleagues uh, to make this event possible and professional. Uh, and that also goes for the, for the marketing people and the AV people here uh, as well. Uh, I'd also like to thank our distinguished guests for making this a great event uh, two years in a row now. Uh, and lastly, I'd like to thank uh, you, the audience, uh, both here at Cato and, and online for, for sticking it out with us all day. Uh, we started the day with uh, some notes of what might best be described as uh, dread at the state of the criminal justice system and the prospects for near future reform, uh, especially at the federal level. Uh, and honestly, it does seem like since we had this conference last year, uh, for every step forward, there's been a step or two uh, back. On election day, four more states voted to end the failed experiment of marijuana prohibition. Uh, but the nominee to be the next attorney general supports the drug war and says that only bad people use marijuana. Uh, further, a recent report from the ACLU and Human Rights Watch found uh, that despite legalization efforts, in 2015, more Americans were arrested for marijuana possession than for all violent crimes combined. Body cameras continue to increase in popularity, and we have more footage of interactions between police and the citizenry uh, than ever before. On the other hand, the on-camera killings of men like Samuel DeBose in Ohio and Walter Scott in South Carolina both of which produced hung juries rather than convictions, have many wondering whether there is a point to recording law enforcement if even cases such as these cannot actually produce a conviction. Events over the past several years, starting with the unrest in Ferguson, Missouri, have produced a bipartisan conversation, uh, bipartisan conversation about and momentum for criminal justice reform that few would have predicted. But we're now looking down the barrel of a law and order administration that advocates for things like the nationwide imposition of stop and frisk and criminal punishments for protected speech. But I'd like to end by suggesting that none of this doom and gloom has any effect on the, on the mission before us. Optimist or pessimist, we don't have a choice but to keep working until we fix these problems. We don't have a choice because in July, five Dallas police officers were murdered in an anti-cop ambush the colleagues and friends of one of our speakers today, Major Max Guerin. That same month, three officers in Baton Rouge were killed in a similar attack. We don't have a choice because more than two million Americans are sitting in cages right now as we discuss this, many of whom committed no violent act or infringed on anyone else's rights. We don't have a choice because millions of Americans still look at a broken, illogical, deadly violent criminal justice system and wonder whether their lives matter to anyone else. Today you heard from academics and policy people. You heard from defense attorneys, prosecutors, and judges. You heard from police officers and ex-convicts, all committed to fixing a broken justice system. 
And that's what I hope people will take away today. There are good men and women at every level and at every institution in our system who are committed to fixing this, but it's not fixed. So we'll see you next year. Thank you. Thank you.